This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. We're talking today with Father Aaron Westman. He's the Vicar General and Director of Formation of the Glen Mary Home Missioners. Uh, he's a PhD from Catholic University of Louvain in Belgium in systematic theology, and he serves as an at-large board member for the Conference of Major Superiors of Men Religious and is a guest lecturer at St. Meinrad Seminary and School of Theology. Uh, Father, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you, TL. It's, uh, it's a pleasure for me, too. So you have a, a book now available on New City Press, part of the Magenta series. The book is The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. And I like the tack of this book. Uh, my, my listeners know that we spend a lot of time talking about the fact that we all belong to one another and the fact that the divisions that we see in our polarized world are really not the ones uh, that, that we should be focusing on. Right, the, the the left or the right, or the um, the whose party you support, or, or any of those other topics, those are all distractions, and and in some way, some perversion of who we are called to live as priests, prophets, and kings, baptized uh, into this faith, as into the body of Christ, and to the fact that we're supposed to be the the current body of Christ, the current incarnation of Christ in the world, empowered by the Spirit going out. Um, I love that your focus in this book, uh, rather than on the polarization, is on the mission, because I feel like so often we get so caught up into what tribe we belong to that we forget what commission we are responsible for. That That's excellent, and I appreciate uh, hearing that you're all very interested in missionary discipleship because, uh, in fact, um, the book is, as you mentioned, principally about the church and who we are as the church. Uh, obviously, I'm looking at the challenge of polarization and how that's affecting us within the church, but I'm trying to return us back to who we are as members of the body of Christ and what does it mean for us to be missionaries in a world that is polarized? Uh, how can we kind of reclaim our identity in Christ, our identity as missionaries, um, and do the things that Jesus invites us to do? without succumbing to what I call the logic of polarization or some of the, the negative tendencies with the polarized world. It feels like it is so easy to get sucked into the, this logic of polarization. Um, and the, the arguments that are being made, they are compelling arguments. Otherwise, you wouldn't see so many people uh, picking a side. How do you propose that we move forward with a mission when sometimes it feels like in order to continue with the mission, we have to to draw very clear lines in the sand and do the things that God would call us to do. How, how do we make that distinction of what things are important to draw lines on uh, and what things we should let go of for the sake of the greater mission? Yeah, so uh, in the book, one of the things that I try to do first is to so sort of say, in order to respond in, to the world in which we're living, uh, I think we really have to understand how polarization affects us. So I would say the first step is kind of understand what has developed over the last four or five or six decades in the United States, how the church is sort of part of the culture of the United States and is sort of journeying or pilgriming through that culture. Sometimes in, in, in certain ways, the way in which the church is contributing to a polarized milieu. Um, but I keep turning us back to kind of reflection upon Jesus. As actually, I talk a lot about Jesus's incarnational movement. 
And I talk about that being kind of the principle or primary metaphor for us to embrace as missionary disciples. And what I mean by that is that I think ultimately, uh, as Catholic Christians, uh, we are to see the whole world around us as our mission field. Uh, and we're to kind of take upon ourselves this incarnational movement, and that is to cross over to all of the various groups that exist out there in the world, and to do so in a sense, kind of thoroughly informed by our faith, uh, as, as much as we can be rooted in, in, in the scriptures and in the gospel and in our relationship with Jesus, but to never then shy away from whatever exists, kind of, if you will, to use your outside the walls, right? And I think one of the tendencies in polarized culture is for us to silo. It's to create bubbles. Uh, it's to kind of create these groups, these so-called bastions, and to sort of wall ourselves off from the world around us, where I think constantly Jesus is inviting us and showing us through his own ministry, his own way of being, his own incarnation, that we, are, we as Christians are called to sort of move outside, uh, to engage with all different groups of people, no matter where, the, where they find themselves politically, ideologically, whether that's Christians from different denominations, people from different religions, races, that's the Christian task, but polarization really can impede us from, from living that. And that's what I try to raise up uh, in the book as best as I can. One of the ways that you approach this, both approaching the problem and approaching the solution, is through the question of identity. There's something key to that idea uh, that I can define myself with. I, f I feel the need in some way to define myself and who I am, and I do that by attaching it to some ancillary thing other than the mission. Uh, you go through a number of different ways in chapter one about how that identity uh, and the drive to identity creates wedges. But by the time you get to chapter two, then you say, okay, well, since identity is the, the starting point maybe of this division, let's address identity particularly in a positive way and in an additive way rather than in a reductive way or an isolating way. Unpack for us a little bit about the importance of identity, its misuse, and its proper use for us. Yeah, so um, when I was studying the challenge of secularization in some of my work in my dissertation, uh, I came across the work, of course, of Charles Taylor, uh, of Sigmund Bauman, and many others who are talking about some of the contours of modernity. And they raise the question and the, and the importance to us of, of, of our identity, which is fundamentally the, you know, answering the question, you know, who am I? Who am I? Which is so important to us, right? So uh, our identity gives us purpose. It gives us meaning. Uh, in a sense, it embeds us. Uh, it helps us understand who we are and what we're to be about. Well, rather than kind of getting into all the details, one of the contours of modernity is that uh, identity is, is sort of uh, watered down or, or liquidated. Um, we don't receive our identity as easily today as people of, say, 500 years ago did. Um, we don't receive those as easily from our families, from the place where we live, from the country in which we're living, and even from the kind of, you know, the, the, the sacred canopy, if you will, uh, which we're living in. All of that is kind of is cracked, if you will. It's somewhat li liquidated. Um, so the challenge for, for modern people is what Sigmund Baum would call the process of individualization, which is essentially to him. Rather than receiving our identity today, our challenge is, in a sense, we feel the need to, to create our identity, uh, to form our identity, to try to figure out what our identity is. And, you know, there, there are good and bad things about that. And in one sense, you know, we can say, well, sometimes we receive an identity from our family that maybe isn't that healthy, or we maybe are in a cult and we receive an identity from a cult. And so 
in, a, in the modern period, we actually have the ability to sort of slough off that, you know, move that away from us and to embrace something else. And so there's kind of a freedom and a liberation with that. But there's also a shadow side with that. Uh, when we, in particular in, in modern culture, don't really know who we are, we don't know exactly what our identity is, we can feel a kind of, a, you know, sort of a, a frantic feeling inside of us to try to say, you know, who am I and, and how do I create my identity? And we go out into the world, someone on our own trying to do that. And so what we do is we attach ourselves to different groups. And that's all important. And that's, and that's a very good thing. And I think we see in the church that the church can provide us an identity. And, and Jesus, of course, provides an identity to us. And all of that is very positive and wonderful. The challenge, of course, in living in a polarized world is that sometimes we attach ourselves to identities, for instance, a political identity. And because of the way in which the parties have sorted and, 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 and homogenized and intensified, as I talk about in the book, in the United States, those parties and partisanship has an outsourcer, an exaggerated influence on our lives. So imagine we're people trying to figure out who we are. We attach ourselves to this sort of partisan identity, which then aligns with all the other identities of my life, right? So my, my racial identity, my religious identity, my, my geographic identity, if you will some of the cultural identity of how I understand myself. And then partisanship, in a sense, influences all of those areas of our lives. And really what we find today is that um, Christians, especially Catholics, you know, depending on which partisan identity they, they align themselves with, they oftentimes look far more like those partisans than followers of Christ. And so we find there's a, this challenge existing in, you know, in a polarized world. I want to explore that idea a little bit more, specifically the difference between receiving an identity and forming and crafting and building an identity. You mention individualism. I, I once had a bishop talk to me about the danger being not merely individualism, but independentism, this idea that I have to somehow independently craft who I am as opposed to being dependent on others and, and being in community with others. Like the idea that there is difference is not bad, and you mentioned that in the book as well, that the idea of uniformity versus unity or homogenization versus diversity, um, that there's there's benefit in our individuality, but it's when we say, I have to hyper-define myself as distinct from everyone else, that we get into not only um, this is my preference, but now that preference becomes something of core to who I am, what my very existence, uh, that, and anytime that identity or that, that element of my preference gets threatened, I take it as an existential threat. And so now it becomes more and more extreme as I fight back against trying to hold some party line of, of autonomy and of individuality where those things are preferences and, and they, might matter, but do they matter so much that I'm willing to to stake relationships on those things or to uh, draw a line in the sand and to battle with people based on that preference as opposed to allowing for there to be some diversity of thought and opinion? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think there's, there's two things worth mentioning here in reference to what you stated. I think the first is that in order to understand the polarized world we're living in and how our identities kind of are fragilized in a polarized world is that, <clears throat> excuse me, when we form ourselves into groups, group dynamics are 
are already going to be at play. There's all kinds of psychological, social psychological research that's been done in this regard. And that it is to say, if two groups are formed and they have kind of minimal and even make-believe identity markers that differentiate the groups, there will be an us versus them mentality at play between those two groups. And I found that to be one of the most remarkable things in kind of studying the challenge of polarization. In a sense, you might say it's from the fall, you might say it's because of how we developed as human beings, but it's sort of wired into us to sort of respond to the world in an us versus them mentality. So this is us and here is our identity and here is my identity. And if your identity is different than mine, well, then look out, right? Because now I need to protect myself. I need to protect my group. And there's that sense of, oh, now I fear that identity that is different. I fear the outsider. And sometimes we even you know, hate and even want to punish the outsider. So one of the things to, I think, for us to imagine that is always kind of happening to us, whether it's in religious community like I exist in, whether it's in a parish, whether it's while we're doing evangelization, whether it's trying to relate to people in the workplace, is that I think we always have to be aware of these group dynamics and that us versus them mentality kind of at play. I'm always thinking about that as vicar general of a religious community because we form factions and we, you know, we it's like you know we have identities. It's a different generation. It's a younger generation. It's a group that comes from this area. It's a group that comes from that area. So we have to be very careful, right? So that the identities which are important to us don't then create, in a sense, that chasm between us and other people, or worse, that hatred. So that's one thing. The other thing I think it's really important to point out, and I've come back to this a lot uh, in, in various types of research that I've done in my dissertation and also in this book, in as much as we are given an identity in Christ, I think that identity is always propelling us toward the other, right? So it, it's, it's an identity that is, it's, it's who we are. It's solid. Jesus, in a sense, uh, places his, his life inside of us and he forms us and he, in a sense, he, he makes us strong when we are weak. But in as much as we embrace that, it's always something that propels us outside of ourselves and, and to the other. So for a Christian, uh, we can be so sort of solidly, solidly rooted in Jesus. But that always means that whenever I see the other, the other shouldn't be a threat to me. The other is an, an invitation to me to go to them because ultimately that's what our lives are for, right? It's to share the gospel with the other despite whether they have a, an identity that is sort of different than mine or even an identity that might even be fearful of mine. Obviously, we have to do that in prudence. And I talk a lot about prudence in the book and kind of some of the dispositions we need to do that difficult task. But I think Christian identity ultimately is one that puts us out to encounter. In a sense, if you talk as Pope Francis does, it, it propels us to the margins, to the peripheries, no matter what that might be for us. Given what you're saying about the importance of of identity and our propensity towards creating us and them based on identity. It seems that one of the most challenging tasks for us as individuals within the church today is to discern what items are worth being keystones of our identity and what things are uh, are of less importance. Certainly not to say that we get rid of those things, but simply to say that we don't stake our identity to those things. Um, what have you seen as a, maybe a successful way to appropriately discern what things are key and what things should be left behind? It's a great question. It's, it's extremely a uh, difficult question for us. I would say that it's 
it is the ongoing uh, discernment that is part of the Christian life. And sometimes I like to talk in terms of, you know, what is essential and what is accidental. So, you know, what is essential to, to my faith, um, to, to our faith? And, 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 what are, and what are things which are accidental? What, what are things that can be changed and shifted and moved, um, can be sort of rethought? You know, what are, in a sense, optional aspects of our faith, like devotional life and, and, and those kinds of things? Um, so I, I think whether it's in my position as a leader, uh, you know, in discerning within the group uh, which uh, of the council that I serve on, you know, trying to talk about, you know, in Glen Mary, what's essential to our charism as Glen Marians? And then where are the accidental things? I mean, I'm constantly having to think about that. Um, I think it's important for us uh, in the church to have this conversation with each other uh, and, and actually to do so uh, in person and actually to have the, the, the deep conversations about, okay, so we're, we're, we're sort of in this uh, post-Vatican II reality. We've been given all of these texts to reflect upon. There are tensions within the text. There are lots of things for us to discern. And I think the unfortunate thing today is that, uh, that oftentimes the two camps that have emerged uh, from Vatican II, if you will, or perhaps three camps, they're, they're not necessarily engaging with each other and asking the fundamental question, which you just mentioned there. It's like, what is essential to our faith and, and what is accidental? What is essential to the deposit and, and what is accidental? And so I think as theologians, that needs to be done for sure. I think it needs to be done in leadership. I think it needs to be done for us personally as Christians. One of the things I talk about in the book is the whole notion of flexibility. And um, I, I define flexibility as actually coming to answer this question, you know, um, of knowing myself, of knowing myself. And flexibility to me is actually saying, do I have space inside of me with my own theological makeup, with my own liturgical preferences that I have, uh, with my own experience of who I've come to know Jesus is? Do I have space in me so there's not too much rigidity that I actually can embrace the other and listen to what is of value to that person? What is of value to them liturgically? What is of value to them um, in terms of the tradition of the church, in terms of devotional life? And can I understand and appreciate and value what they are saying to me? And I think those are some of the tasks that we actually have to really be engaged in, particularly in a polarized world where Again, polarization is always acting on us, and it actually is creating a deeper sense of rigidity. It's actually creating a sense in us of, of a fear of what is different, when in fact, what is different might just be something that is accidental, and it's okay for somebody to embrace that. It's okay for me to practice my faith, faith in this particular way. I think some of this stems down to, before we get into even how do I fit within the church and what is my identity within the church? I think that there is uh, maybe a misunderstanding or a misdiagnosis of what it means for us to be church. And I found this both when I was in the Protestant world and and since I've become Catholic, this question of what picture pops into your mind uh, when you when you picture the church's place in the world. Um, and the statement was was thrown at me a number of years ago, and it, it just kind of sticks with me, that that as Christians, we're called to be producers and not consumers of ministry. Producers and not consumers of ministry. Um, and I think to that of being, uh, of Paul's statement of being ministers of reconciliation. Um, so often I feel, 
as I hear people talking, uh, maybe in fear of the other, uh, in kind of a culture war place, I I feel like they have a picture that they are a bastion against which the world incurs, right? And so we have to hold the line or or somehow uh, protect the the purity or the the authenticity of the faith from those on the outside who would come in. I feel that the proper perspective of that is the reverse, that Christ sends us into the world uh, to go into all the world to make disciples, and we are the ones who are incurring on the world. Uh, the, the same metaphor, the, the same is true with the metaphor that Jesus speaks of us being leaven that leavens the whole dough, that we are the little bit that goes in and infiltrates and and creates life and beauty and, and so it's not so much that we have to um, hold the line and and be pure and make sure that we're uh, having the you know making sure that you belong on the right side, as much as it is. How do I go out and take Christ with me into all the places that I go, realizing that I don't have to protect anything. I don't have to hold. Um, hold some standard of purity, I have to go and take the presence of Christ that I've received through baptism, through the Eucharist, and in a particular way, through confirmation, which enables us to go out and be witnesses, and then to take that bit of Christ everywhere I go. And I think that if you have that perspective of being the one who goes rather than the one who protects, it fundamentally changes the relationship that we have with those around us and with the world. Yeah. It, it's tough to really um, get at the tension that you're highlighting. Uh, on the one hand, I'm very much in agreement. So I use different saints in the book. I look at St. Francis and when the medieval period was operating in a significant way in the mindset of the putting the, up the fortress and putting up the bastion and walling themselves off from the outside world, Understandably, right? So there were threats that were taking place. Uh, there was there was war going on between Christianity and Islam. So understandably, understandably, Francis sort of thought outside that, and he presented to us a different image, which is very attractive to me, and I think it highlights our identity as missionary disciples. What did he do? He he walks vulnerably, takes the risk to the battle line, and crosses over, knowing full well he's probably not going to make it, right? But he risks it because of the faith which he believes in. And then he sits down with the sultan and has a conversation. And as you mentioned, right, so something new emerges because of his willingness to be that leaven, to to cross over, uh, to engage with the sultan. So I think that that kind of, in part, is fundamentally what I'm talking about in my book. That's the initial movement of crossing over. Now, that being said, I do think we have to think about that there might be cases in which we will have to, in a sense, protect ourselves or, or protect those we love or or protect the faith of maybe those who are a little bit weak, right? So we can think of like neophytes or catechumens and, you know, or, or trying to raise children. I don't have my own children, obviously, but I talk to a lot of folks who do have young children. And they say, you know, what, what does, Father Aaron, what does crossing over mean for me with my children, right? So like, how can I, at this stage in their life, expose them to the many things that exist within the world around them? And, and I, I take that very seriously, right? So I do think that being a missionary disciple requires a lot of prudence. And so there will be situations where I just am not strong enough in my faith to do the Francis thing. And that is to completely go out 
Maybe I need to be strengthened. I need to learn more. Or we might say, maybe my children, they need a little bit more solid foundation to understand who they are in Jesus. And yet, like as I mentioned, they also have to recognize that at some point, that solid foundation propels them to go out, right? To, to do the Francis thing, to, to cross over uh, as Jesus showed us throughout his ministry. So it's a great point. And I think that there's always this great dance that we have to do, the dance of prudence to try to figure out what is Jesus calling me to in this particular moment. I don't recall who said it. Um, I believe it was uh, an an Eastern, uh, I don't know if it was a father, an Eastern father, an Eastern theologian who talked about um, we should judge ourselves by our uh, by our actions and others by their intentions. And so often we judge others by their intentions and us by our actions. Um, we know what we mean and and we assume that we know what the other person means. And so I think for me, as I, as I look at uh, more and more being other directed, as you mentioned here previously, uh, one of the most important things we can do is to lose the assumption that we really understand what that other person is meaning to do and, and approach them with a greater extent of grace, both those who are completely outside the faith and those who are inside the faith and doing things that just infuriate us, right? To to view that with more charity, as much charity as can be can be given, um, and then letting letting the conversation, letting the relationship be built, rather than rushing to cut uh, cut lines in the sand wherever we can. Yeah, and what you're highlighting here is actually documented in a lot of research on polarization. We make a lot of presumptions and assumptions about the the so-called other, and oftentimes we're actually way off base. Uh, we make assumptions about people and their perspectives, and you know what they look like and what that might entail for their life story, and so on and so forth. And that's one of the great dangers, I think, for the church, particularly living in a polarized world, is that you know we are called to go out, and then what I would argue, what I argue for in the book is is actually for curiosity curiosity, it's its not really a, a virtue per se, but in a sense, it's kind of also Catholicity, right? So it's its opening myself up to the to the other person and not just what I presume about them, but their their story, right? Uh, not just their ideas, but the, the cultural context which has formed them, uh, living with the tensions that emerge as I'm talking to this person and as I'm engaging them, um, allowing myself to to grow. And, and again, flexibility says, do I have the space in me to actually be changed by what this person has to say? It's a very difficult thing to do, right? So when we talk about fragile identities, changing introduces more fragility and uncertainty, but that's that great risk or the vulnerability that is required of us as Christians living today. We're talking today with Father Aaron Westman. Uh, he is the author of the book, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. It's part of the Magenta series over on U City Press. We'll put a link over on our social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. Don't go anywhere because there is so much more to this conversation right after this break as we further explore our mission, our identity, and how to pursue that across these polarized lines. Don't go anywhere. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We're talking today about the church's mission in a polarized world, uh, both the topic and the book by the same name, uh, written by Father Aaron Westman, a Glen Mary missioner, Glen Mary home missioner. Uh, the book is available on New City Press from the part of the Magenta series there, edited by Charles Camosi, who we've had on the show many times over. Um, before we go farther, further in this topic, Father, would you tell us a little bit about your order? Uh, for those who are unfamiliar with the Glen Mary Home Missioners, what is the order? What's the charism, and uh, and how does that play out specifically in uh, in your life? Yeah, thanks for giving me the chance, T.L., to talk about Glen Mary. Um, Glen Mary was founded back in the 1930s by a diocesan priest by the name of Father William Howard Bishop. And Father Bishop received a rural assignment uh, in the Archdiocese of Baltimore at that time, and he fell in love with rural America. What he began to realize was that there were whole areas uh, in the United States and rural America that had really no Catholic presence at all. They had, he called this No Priest Land USA. During Father Bishop's time, there were about a thousand counties without any established Catholic population, without any priest serving those counties. Most of those were in Appalachia and in the Southeast. And so Father Bishop, you know, seeing that the U.S. Church was sending missionaries overseas, basically said, we really need a missionary organization that goes to these counties in the United States and brings the gifts of the Catholic Church and establishes the church and, and also does its job to build the kingdom in these rural areas. And so basically for the last um, 80 years or so, Glen Mary's been going to rural counties throughout Appalachia in the Southeast, and we're priest brothers and also lay people. Uh, and we go to these places and we bring the gifts of the Catholic Church. We evangelize. We do the social mission of the church. Uh, we do a lot of ecumenical work because in these areas, most of the people are Protestant. Uh, sometimes up to 60% of the people actually don't belong to any uh, religious background at all. So we're doing dealing a lot with the nuns, um, which has been very common today. But our task is one really of crossing over uh, into rural America, uh, living with the people, establishing relationships with them, and then as is appropriate and prudent, sharing the gospel with them. You mentioned uh, that that you have lay people working alongside you. Are are these lay people similar to what you would see in a third order of a religious, or is this a, a lay person in a, in a parish who might want to get involved and, and come and participate in the work that you do? It's actually kind of all of the above. Uh, so we have lay missioners who um, actually uh, took on a, a significant part of the Glen Mary charism and, and worked alongside of us uh, in, in the mission areas. We also have lay employees uh, who are hired, we, we might call them a lay evangelizer, they might serve as like a, a, a parish life coordinator, actually helping to establish a mission. We have some regional missionaries, people doing Hispanic ministry. Um, so we have, and then we also have a lot of lay volunteers. We have a volunteer program uh, in East Tennessee at a place called Tapa Japa. And we have high school and college groups that, that, that come down into East Tennessee, into Appalachia, uh, and they live with the people for a week or a couple weeks at a time. Uh, they do outreach. They see what the Catholic Church is like in that area, but they also, in a sense, stand in solidarity with the folks of of, of rural Appalachia. They get to know them. They help them on projects uh, with projects if if they emerge. So it's a great thing for a lot of different people to get involved in different ways. You can learn more at glenmary.org, and you know that someone is from that area when they say Appalachia. You said it properly, so well done there. <laughs> Thanks. I've learned over the years. <laughs> So let's let's come back to 
to the book. Um, the book, again, is The Church's Mission in a Polarized World um, by Father Aaron Westman on New City Press, part of the Magenta series. Um, we're talking about discerning and understanding our role as really as missionary disciples and what that means for us to be able to uh, to overcome polarization, to overcome the the uh, the the temptation of polarization. And for me, I came to a place where I had to name polarization for what it was. Um, that polarization is a very alluring thing. I want to belong. I want to have a sense of belonging. I want to have people that are like me that I can com- commune with and and share fellowship with and feel supported by. And so it really is a strong draw towards, let me identify the people who look most like me. Um, but for those of you who are married, you know that um, very often the person that you end up marrying is not the person who looks exactly like you and that there is conflict and there still is, and I, I think this is something that we're um, we're lied to by our society, uh, that we see played out in marriage all the time successfully is that uniformity is not required for communion. Uh, and and I don't have to have an us versus them for every preferential difference uh, that, that I can have even intimacy and closeness with someone who sometimes bugs me, right? It's, who is very different from me. And so f- I came to a place where I had to recognize and name that polarization was actually uh, not only not healthy, but it was one of those things that when you go to a baptism and you're asked to um, to repeat the baptismal promises of, do you reject Satan and all his empty promises and all his works? I had to, to realize and name that polarization was one of those empty promises and empty works that I as a Catholic and and a Christian and someone who is a missionary disciple have to reject and choose to reject on a regular basis uh, and make a definitive choice for the opposite. It's not something that's just going to naturally happen. Naturally, I'm going to get sucked into birds of a feather flock together. I have to make a definitive choice that this is not who I want to be. This is not who I'm called to be. And therefore, I have to make this other determination and intentional choices to pull myself out of polarization and to be a builder of community, a minister of reconciliation that brings those disparate peoples together rather than siloing them apart. <laughs> that's that's such a really well put in, in what you're saying there, because um, I talk about in, in the book that, in fact, psychologically and sociologically, we want to belong to groups. It is fundamentally important to who we are. Uh, there are mechanisms inside of us that, that alert us when we feel we're, you know, being ostracized by a group. We there's a principle called homophily that we are attracted, uh, as they say, birds of a feather flock together. We just are by nature attracted to the the people people that are like us. So there's a certain comfort that comes along with that. And I think that in a sense, it's the Holy Spirit and and, and, the, and the mission of the church that it, it invites us to break out of that comfort. For the, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of what uh, Jesus desires of us. But that will be very risky. And what I try to show in the book is, is that today that risk is felt, I think, a lot greater than perhaps in, in different periods because 
of the uncertainty that goes along with living in a polarized age. In a sense, we are being kind of we're solidified in the groups that we have formed. It's not just that we enjoy them, but we're hanging on to them for what we sometimes perceive as for for the sake of our own life, right? Um, but but Jesus is in a sense is saying, okay, it's time to make a decision. And I talk about that decision in the book. What does that decision look like? Well, it's a decision to say, I can enjoy the group that I'm a part of, and it's important to me, but I'm also being called to the other. I'm also being called to go out. Uh, and it's possible. And, and, and then really, Jesus shows us the way. And I try in the book to, to, to provide a kind of spirituality that will assist people in doing that in the age in which we're living. As you're talking about holding on to these groups, the, 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 these comfort groups for our, for, our, for our own sake, for our dear life, the the words of Christ kind of echoed in my head um, as as a challenge for us to pry our hands loose from these groups uh, that whoever would uh, lose his life would find it and sometimes we're so scared of of giving up what is known because what is unknown is terrifying that we think that I'm only ever going to belong right here in this group that this this identity this is everything to me. This is who I am. And if I let go of that, what will be left? Well, you really won't know the answer to that until you, following Christ out of the boat, let go of that community and see where it is that he takes you. Uh, I recall, and I've talked about this with this person on air before, um, there was someone that I was in a formation program with who was very much in a different polarization group than I was. Um, and, and I had him pegged for his theology and everything else. And, you know, he likewise had me pegged and somehow by the grace of the Holy spirit, we ended up talking more and more and ended up finding ourselves really kind of more belonging to one another and being shaped by the other person and forming ourselves toward this middle that I think that we're both healthier for having done but it was a terrifying process to say, I'm going to let go of, of this, uh, this line in the sand that I've drawn. Um, even if I'm not saying that it's wrong, even if it's still an important thing, I'm going to let go of it as the most important thing and engage in conversation to see where we end up. Yeah. You know, and I think if we think about our own conversion experiences, um, there probably was somebody along the way who, who took the risk to kind of cross over to us, right? and they might have identified in our life areas in which we needed to grow. I certainly know that this was the case, right? They probably knew, yeah, th 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 this guy, is, he's got a couple of issues he needs to deal with. But they took the risk to, to stand in solidarity with us, with me, let's say. And they built a relationship. And, and because they took that risk, you know, we are where we are today. We were given the gift of faith. We were given a relationship, a mentorship so on and so forth. So I think reflecting on that for ourselves in a polarized world is, is really saying to us, if that's happened to us, are we willing to take the risk to go to the so-called ideological or political or racial uh, other and, and, and risk crossing over? We, might, we, we know we will think differently than they do. Uh, they might see the world in a different way. But can we risk standing in solidarity with them? Because in that moment, at some point, not all the time, but many times, there will emerge a moment where that relationship can really be formed and that we can actually share who we are and they share who they are. And we find that actually that what I call is that there's a mutual exchange of grace, which is what I call a salvific moment. I mean, that's actually communion in itself, right? So that's a moment of deepening communion uh, between two people. And I, and I would argue also between those two people 
uh, in God. When I first became Catholic, um, I, I had come to a place where I was convinced and believed all that the Holy Catholic Church taught, believed, and professed to be revealed by God. And, and I could say that without hesitation. But when I was challenged on that from people who hadn't had the same journey, if I had a really good answer, no problem, I would give you that good answer. But if I felt like I didn't have a good answer for you, I would get maybe a little bit testy, <laughs> maybe a little bit defensive. Uh, and and there were times where I would pick a, a point that I knew was right because I'd become convinced of all the, all the, the church teaches, um, that I would use that that thing as a weapon. Um, and I, I think now of the story of Jesus coming uh, and the woman caught in adultery being brought to him. And he didn't start with what she expected to, him to start with, right? What everyone else was starting with, all of the, the accusations that were being thrown at her. Rather, he subverts both her expectations and the expectations of those who were trying to accuse her. Um, and without in the least saying that what she did was not wrong, right? In fact, the end of that encounter, he says, neither do I accuse you, go and sin no more. Um, he doesn't, he doesn't change the standard, but he changes his response to that standard in such a way that by subverting the expectation, he can offer grace and de-escalate a situation that so often we find ourselves as members of the crowd and representatives of that crowd rather than being the representative of Christ in that situation. And, and the mob does have a significant influence on us today, and that crowd can influence us to do things that we probably shouldn't do. And it impinges or, or motivates us or influences us, I think, to not do the curious thing that Jesus did, right? So to not be able to go to that person like the woman and approach it from a different perspective. I think today we really need to kind of change our um, mindset to imagine responding in the world in different ways than, than we are responding today. And actually in the book, I, I do talk a lot about the war metaphor, right? So we know that the, the culture war is a, is a significant metaphor that exists in our age today. And it's really emerged from the 80s and on into our period. And if you just Google culture war, you know, you're going to get millions of hits. And it's, it's in the political world, it's in, but it's also in the ecclesial world. And that war metaphor actually affects who we are. It affects how we understand the other, how we see the world. And what I invite us to do in the book is really change the metaphor, which is kind of what you're saying, right? Jesus, Jesus changed the metaphor. He changed the environment. And I invite us to kind of imagine how might we respond in different ways today that are going to be challenging uh, the mob itself, but also, you know, challenging the people that we encounter. And then really we'll, we'll, we'll present a challenge to ourselves when we do so. Mm -hmm. The book is The Church's Mission in a Polarized World. It's available on New City Press. It's part of the Magenta series. And this is my encouragement to you, my challenge, let's say. Uh, you should go to the website, newcitypress.com. Buy three or four copies. Go to your parish and find someone who bugs you, who, who, who you think is just not quite there, not quite on the same page that you are. Get get three or four people together and read this book together. Iron sharpens iron. See how you can grow in communion with those people and this book. Again, The Church's Mission in a Polarized World by Father Aaron Westman, who is a Glenmary Home Missioner. Father Westman, thank you so much for joining us today. 
It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much, TL. If you missed any part of my conversation with Father Westman or you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And each and every week we record an extra segment, one that doesn't make it here onto the broadcast. And we record it specifically for those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air. And in gratitude, we give them a couple extra questions with our guest and a deeper dive into the topic. You can learn more over at OutsideTheWalls.com by clicking that Patreon link there in the menu bar. There you can find older extra segments that are now available to the public. Maybe catch up on an older episode, listen to those extra questions, and see if that might be something you'd like to be a part of on an ongoing basis. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from Church History. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking scripture to the catechism, to fathers and doctors of the church, biblical commentaries, original language research, spiritual reading, and so much more. You can learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading today from scripture comes from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans, chapter 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That reading again comes from the letter of St. Paul to the Romans. And this is one of those many places in the letters of St. Paul where he gives kind of a list, uh, a checklist of, am I doing the things that God is asking of me? Uh, and he has this in a couple of different books in a couple of different places. And it's just a really easy litmus test, almost a mirror for you to examine yourself and examine your conscience to see if you are measuring up. And this, I think this one in particular speaks directly to what we've been talking about today. Am I holding a line that I'm not meant to hold? Am I 
creating a, uh, a silo in place of the unity and the communion that God calls me to as a member of the body of Christ. And this would be a great thing to use as, um, as an examination of conscience before you go into, into the confessional to say, God, am I creating dissension and barriers where you have called me to unity and communion? Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And lest we too quickly say, oh, well, that's, that's love one another within my own group, within my own tribe. Paul very quickly moves us to, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Our reading from church history today comes from a sermon by Baldwin of Canterbury. The Lord knows the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Without a doubt, every one of them is known to him, while we know only those which he lets us read by the grace of discernment. The spirit of man does not know all that is in man, nor all the thoughts which he has, willingly or unwillingly. Man does not always perceive his thoughts as they really are, having clouded vision he does not discern them clearly with his mind's eye. Often, under the guise of devotion, a suggestion occurs to our mind coming from our own thoughts or from another person or from the tempter, and in God's eyes we do not deserve any reward for our virtue. For there are certain imitations of true virtues, as also of vices, which play tricks with the heart and bedazzle the mind's vision. As a result, the appearance of goodness often seems to be in something which is evil, and equally, the appearance of evil seems to be in something good. This is part of our wretchedness and ignorance, causing us anguish and anxiety. It has been written, There are paths which seem to a man to be right, but which in the end lead him to hell. To avoid this peril, St. John gives us these words of advice. Test the spirits to see if they are from God. No one can test the spirits to see if they are from God unless God has given him discernment of spirits to enable him to investigate spiritual thoughts, inclinations, and intentions with honest and true judgment. Discernment is the mother of all the virtues. Everyone needs it either to guide the lives of others or to direct and reform his own life. In the sphere of action, a right thought is one ruled by the will of God, and intentions are holy when directed single-mindedly toward Him. In a word, we could see clearly through any action of ours or into our entire lives if we had a simple eye. A simple eye is an eye and it is simple. This means that we see by right thinking what is to be done, and by our good intention, we carry it out with simple honesty, because deceitful action is wrong. Right thinking does not permit mistakes. A good intention rules out pretense. This, then, is true discernment, a combination of right thinking and good intention. Therefore, we must do all our actions in the light of discernment. 
as if in God and in his presence. That reading again comes from a homily by Baldwin of Canterbury. Anytime there's a litmus test, anytime there is a list of things that I am supposed to aspire to or examine myself against, anytime that there is a reminder in either scripture or in the church fathers that I don't necessarily even know my own mind and I am capable of being deceived, anytime those things come uh, and I am faced with them, there is the temptation towards um, scrupulosity, towards this Pelagian idea of, I just have to try harder. Um, I don't know how to discern well, so I have to you know, concentrate on discerning harder so that I can finally achieve that to which I'm called. And Baldwin of Canterbury here very early on reminds us that the Lord knows the, not only our thoughts, but our intentions, and not only our, our, our mental thoughts and intentions, but the thoughts and intentions of our heart, uh, the, those, those parts that are just deepest to us. And without a doubt, every one of them is known to Him, while we know only those which He lets us read by the grace of discernment. It's so easy to try and figure out the formula to discern better to figure it out by our own effort. But Baldwin of Canterbury reminds us that even this process of discernment, which is essential to us as, as holy people, this process of discernment is a gift, and it's not something that we can, uh, can white-knuckle our way through or simply exercise harder to figure out. It's something that we have to be graced in order to be able to exercise. And this, I think, is the most important for us as we seek to live out the church's mission in the polarized world, is that the very first step that we have to take is willingness to approach and ask for God's grace and his mercy in the midst of this. We can, we can identify all day long, we can diagnose the problem in our own mind, but it's not until we step back and say, I've obviously not done as good a job at this as I thought, and so I'm going to ask for your grace and for your direction to help me to live up to these things, to help me to live at peace with everyone, even though that is not my first intention, to help me to be, um, to be a person who pursues unity and communion instead of a person who's trying to divide and, and categorize. We talk about first steps all the time, but I really think that the first step in this is to turn in prayer and ask for God's grace to rightly discern the steps ahead. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Susan Wise and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more be a part of the ongoing conversation over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.
This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.